Listener discretion is advised. The following audio contains sounds that may be distressing, 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 distressing. And I want to explain to my, what we always say is, to each other, my good friends on the other side. By the time I'm finished, you will be clear that we're not good friends. I am not interested in moving at a snail's pace. I am not interested in a watered-down bill that mandates nothing. I'm not interested in studying Antifa. I'm not even interested in studying the Klan or sovereign citizens right now. Because that is not the imminent threat that black men face on a daily basis. And right now, too often, it is law enforcement. Those who were sworn to protect and to serve. And so all we're asking today is to deal with that. I don't mind dealing with other pieces of legislation. I don't mind dealing with other issues that you all may have. And, and what I don't want to leave this conversation with and why I'm speaking now instead of later is because I don't want you all to leave here saying well we didn't know we didn't know that's how you felt Cedric I want it to be crystal clear and I will give you the benefit of the doubt that it is an unconscious bias that I'm hearing because at worst it's conscious bias and that I would hate to assume from any of the people on the other side it is not about the color of your kids it is about black males black people in the streets that are getting killed and if one of them happens to be your kid i'm concerned about him too and clearly i'm more concerned about him than you are so let's be clear about that claiming so you're claiming you're more concerned for my family than i do who in the hell do you gentlemen gentlemen if the shoe fits you don't know how much we gentlemen will suspend kick dog holler you should take those words down the gentleman will suspend the gentleman suspend the time belongs to the gentleman from louisiana was that a nerve Hey guys, this is Chuma, and you're listening to The Silent Doc. It was really hard to know where to start this episode, so I decided before we take this journey, I should ground you with my voice. I know I'm wading into troubled waters with this episode, and I don't take that lightly. But what we are seeing is both unprecedented and impossible to ignore. Even if you try to shut your eyes to it or close your ears to the sound waves coming in, The debate rages on. Reform, defund, or abolish. So, if you will be brave enough to take this journey with me, right now, I would like to take you there. Not to convince you of anything, but to bring you into the conversation. For those of you who have heard my prior episode, A Bleeding City, The Sound of Unrest, you have an idea of what's about to happen. For those of you who haven't, sit tight, Get comfortable, because we're about to take a journey. But, before we begin, as stated, listener discretion is advised. Please, check the show notes for all the clips. But today, we have sound from Angela Davis on Democracy Now!, John Oliver from This Week Tonight, a Minneapolis City Council member, Jeremiah Ellison, 
Sherry Ellen Ifo on The Late Show, Virginia Representative Cedric Richmond, and of course, actual sounds from the protests, the unrest, and the police. Let's get started. Um, after review of that footage, 
um, Chief Shields and I have made the determination that two of the officers involved in the incident last night will be terminated immediately.
Now, for a century after that, police in the South were responsible for enforcing segregation while allowing and sometimes participating in lynchings and anti-black terrorism. And as black people migrated to the North by the millions, they were met there yet again by brutality. And all of this, coupled with the continued denial of economic and housing opportunities, not always particularly subtle, by the way, meant that by the summer of 1967, there were a series of high-profile uprisings against racial injustice across the United States, or as white people actually described that exact time. The summer of 1967. It is known as the summer of love. Yeah, it is known as that. And that's a pretty big disconnect, isn't it? And it honestly makes me slightly worry that what's happening right now will be remembered one day by white historians as the summer of chromatica. And look, things did not improve from the 60s onward. Nixon pledged fealty to law and order and started the war on drugs, which Reagan later turbocharged. And by the time we got to the 90s, a school of thought called broken windows or zero tolerance policing had started to take root, which held that if minor crimes are left unattended, it will lead to more serious crimes. Therefore, police had better crack down on those minor offences. That fueled the saturation of police in low-income communities of colour and gave way to policies like stop and frisk, which essentially allowed police officers to search people at random. At that policy's peak in 2011, of the nearly 700,000 stops recorded in New York, the vast majority were of black and Latino people. Or, to put that another way, those policies too often basically amounted to this fucking bullshit just under a different name. And that sort of aggressive policing was accompanied by constant calls to increase the number of police officers on the streets. And let's be clear here, Democrats were very much involved in that, from big city mayors all the way on up to this guy. An initiative to put 100,000 more police officers on the street. More prisons, more prevention, 100,000 more police. 100,000 new police in communities of all sizes. We need to finish the job of putting 100,000 more police on our streets. Last fall, Congress supported my plan to hire, in addition to the 100,000 community police we've already funded, 50,000 more concentrated in high-crime neighborhoods. Yeah, thanks very much for that, Congress. 100,000 police officers isn't cool. You know what's cool? Massively expanding a broken institution to score cheap political points. And if you can do that while playing the saxophone, well, that just gets even cooler. And all the while, as we were continuing to boost funding for police and give them more authority, we were simultaneously slashing spending on key social services. That meant that in many communities, the police were the only ones left to handle almost any issue that people had, which is a real problem, as this former Dallas police chief readily admits. We're asking cops to do too much in this country. We are. We're just asking us to do too much. Every societal failure, we put it off on the cops to solve. Not enough mental health funding. Let the cop handle it. Not enough drug addiction funding. Let's give it to the cops. Here in Dallas, we got a loose dog problem. Let's have the cops chase loose dogs. And you know what? He's absolutely right. We are asking police to do far too much. They have a massive array of complicated duties that in many cases they just aren't equipped to handle, making them very much the Jared Kushners of local officials, without, of course, the expression, complexion and general demeanour of a haunted baby. So while we should absolutely be angry at the police right now, let's also be angry at the series of choices that left them as essentially the only public resource in some communities. And on top of all of that... We've made those bad choices even more dangerous in recent years by needlessly arming police to the fucking teeth. 
As we discussed six years ago now, we've issued the police literal military-grade equipment, some of which you've seen used to control and intimidate protesters this week. And it's frankly not just the hardware that's a problem here. Because a whole sub-industry of police training has also cropped up to reinforce the message that cops are at war. And perhaps no one takes that idea further than this guy. Once you've made the decision to take a human life, you're a transformed creature, you're a predator. What does a predator do? They kill. Only a killer can hunt a killer. Are you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically prepared to snuff out a human life in defense of innocent lives? If you can't make that decision, you need to find another job. Wow. You know, the problem with telling someone that they're a predator is that it primes them to see the rest of the world as potential prey. And of course, cops who went through this training could wind up on edge. Now, that gross man is actually called Dave Grossman, and he calls himself an expert in killology, a term that he invented and defines as the scholarly study of the destructive act. And as batshit as Grossman is, he's by no means a fringe figure in police culture. He's on the road giving trainings 200 days a year. The officer who shot Philando Castile had taken a class based on Grossman's theories. announced Saturday. It would disband and abolish the police department responsible for the killing of African-American man George Floyd following nearly two weeks of mass protest and growing calls to defund the police. In a statement, nine of the city's 12 council members said, quote, decades of police reform efforts have proved that the Minneapolis Police Department cannot be reformed and will never be accountable for its action. We recognize that we don't have all the answers about what a police-free future looks like, but our community does, they said. The historic announcement comes after years of organizing on the ground by groups like Reclaim the Block, Black Visions Collective, and MPD 150. This is Minneapolis City Council President Lisa Bender speaking Sunday. Our commitment is to do what's necessary to keep every single member of our community safe and to tell the truth that the Minneapolis police are not doing that. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. 
A supermajority of Minneapolis City Council members support disbanding the police department, meaning Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry, who opposes abolishing the police, can't override their efforts. Well, we go now to Minneapolis, where we're joined by City Council member Jeremiah Ellison. Um, Council member Ellison, welcome back to Democracy Now! This is a historic announcement that the majority of you on the City Council made at a big community rally last Last night that you are going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. Explain what that means. Uh, for me, it means that we've got to create a system of public safety that works for everybody. Um, you know, I think the Minneapolis Police Department, even before the murder of George Floyd, uh, has had a whole host of issues. Um, a handful I can just rattle off the top of my head. You know, we, we dealt with an issue of uh, uh, the Minneapolis Police Department being involved in the illegal injection of ketamine of, uh, uh, of people who did not need it. Um, we've had uh, a, a, a history of um, not uh, taking uh, sexual assault cases seriously, investigations seriously, and actually recently lied about how many untested rape kits we had. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Uh, and so I think that there has been an acknowledgement that, um, you know, uh, we have done everything we can on the reform side. We have a chief who is probably one of the most pro-reform chiefs and has instituted every reform you, 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 we legally can. Um, In fact, and he so himself had sued the Minneapolis Police Department for racism. Isn't that true years ago? That, yeah, that, that is true. That is true. Um, and so I think that uh, when we're looking at um, you know, uh, having an amazing chief and we're looking at having a council who has pushed for reform. Um, and, and it's not just that the relationship is bad. We, the relationship is, is untenable. Um, where do we go from here? I think that that means we have to ask ourselves, uh, what is the best way to keep people safe? Uh, if, if not the Minneapolis police department, at some point there will have to be a vote about what our new uh, system of public safety looks like. Uh, you know, just to give you an example, um, one of the most effective programs that we've been able to fund, uh, really on a shoestring budget is our group violence prevention program. Uh, it's a program that, that, uh, helps uh, young men get out of gang uh, gang activity uh, and, and remove themselves from gang life. It's a program that's been more successful in getting um, in getting gang members to um, choose a different path forward for themselves uh, than sending them to jail or anything else that we've tried uh, in the past. Uh, that's just one program, for example, that I think that we need to actually put our uh, put our investment in um, to get fully operational um, so that we can keep our city safe. You know, we're going to have to figure out how to address things like active shooter situations, uh, and uh, we're not... Um, you know, we're, we're, we're aware of the fact that some situations are extremely difficult to de-escalate. Uh, but most of what police do, uh, you know, we did a study last year of 911 calls, uh, and we realized that, uh, that one of the top calls that police make are for uh, what we call emotionally disturbed persons or mental health calls. Um, do we need use of for someone uh, uh, with a use of force background to answer that call? Uh, do we need a gun present at a call like that? Do we need a gun present at a at a call uh, for a forged twenty dollar bill? Um, I think that uh, I think that the answer to that is no, and uh, we've got to. But we've never, as a country, uh, leaned into figuring out how do we address um, uh, uh, issues like this without force. Uh, and and uh, I think that my my colleagues and I are committed to figuring that out. I want to ask.
ask you about the Minneapolis Police Union President Bob Kroll. Activists are demanding he resign after he called George Floyd a violent criminal, described protesters as terrorists, and called on police to expand their use of force. In April, Kroll told a radio podcaster he wasn't bothered by shootings he's been involved in. I've been involved in three shootings myself, and not one of them has bothered me. Um, you know, maybe I'm different. Minnesota's AFL-CIO Coalition of Labor Unions has joined calls demanding that Minneapolis Police Union President Bob Crow resign. Uh, Jeremiah Ellison, if you can talk about the role of the police union, and are you also calling for Kroll to be out? Uh, I would love for Kroll to be out, but I don't I don't think this is the first time people have called for Kroll to resign. Um, Kroll has a long history in the department of incompetence and of uh, rage. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that he very much so follows in this traditional model of policing. Uh, when you look at sort of the, the, the groundwork that's been laid for modern day policing, uh, it's to enforce vagrancy laws. It's to, uh, uh, you know, bust the heads of union organizers. And Kroll very much so is proud of that tradition. And I think uh, into that tradition. Um, I think that Kroll, knowing that he is protected by uh, the base, our department that democratically elected him to represent them, uh, he knows that there's really no grounds for him to have to resign. There's no pressure uh, for him have to, uh, to have to resign, even if people are calling for it. Uh, I'm sure he finds the whole endeavor amusing, quite frankly. Um, and, uh, and, and Kroll doesn't just represent himself. Um, Kroll represents, he's democratically elected by our department uh, to represent them. And so uh, I think that for a long time, we've underestimated what it means to have a department that elects somebody continually who advocates for extreme use of force, who recently advocated for uh, the the use of lethal rounds um, on demonstrators here in Minneapolis, um, uh, who is the member of a biker gang with ties to white supremacist organizations. I think that we've often regarded him as an annoyance. Um, and I think that the truth is that he, for a long time, he's been a lot more dangerous than that. Jeremiah Ellison, your father, Keith Ellison, of course, is the Attorney General of Minnesota, the first African-American Attorney General of Minnesota. He's in charge of the prosecution of the four officers, just uh, increased the charges against Chauvin and uh, charged the other three officers. Um, uh, have you discussed with him uh, this whole issue of dismantling the police department? Uh, you know, I think he's aware of the, of the concept of dismantling the police department. Uh, I, I can't speak for him, obviously, uh, uh, but I think that this is a concept that has to be explored. Um, you know, as I said, you know, I think someone asked the question um, uh, of me, you know, what, what are we going to do about um, sexual assault cases? And I had to remind them that our current department does not uh, solve sexual assault cases, uh, sexual assault cases uh, and, and has a track record of not taking them seriously. Um, lied about the number of uh, rape kits that we had um, untested. Uh, I think that uh, I also had a, a constituent call yesterday upset saying, you know, Jeremiah, the police don't call, don't answer when we call now. What, what, what will we expect now? Uh, and I said, well, look, what I'm hearing from you is that the police don't come when you call. Uh, and so uh, we've got to figure out a system that that uh, that keeps you safe, that keeps our neighbors safe. Uh, this current one is not it.
do something that's long overdue, which is to fund fundamentally reimagine what public safety looks like in this country. And what we have done is we have turned over to armed law enforcement officers the right to enter our communities to solve a set of community conflicts that actually don't require an armed officer. Your child that suffers from mental illness is having some kind of crisis and you fear they're going to harm themselves. We call 911 and an armed police officer comes. There's a homeless person that you haven't been able to to get services or to move off your stoop, we call 911. Um, you know, young people are playing outside and it's midnight. You told them to quiet down and they cussed you out. You know, you call 911. All of these are circumstances in which we can point to cases where police show up and someone ends up dead. But what we should have and what we should be investing in are youth counselors so that you're not dialing 911. Maybe you're dialing 711 when there's a problem that involves a youth conflict resolution uh, need. Maybe you're dialing 511 for a mental health crisis. Maybe you're dialing 411 for a homeless person's crisis. And we're saying those are the services that are also part of the public safety apparatus. And rather than turn the entire public safety regime over to armed law enforcement officers, we need to look at that funding, reduce that funding, and use it to support these other services. And police officers themselves will tell you they don't want to be social workers. They get called upon to solve all kinds of problems that they're not trained to solve. I think we agree, and we should therefore make sure that we can support those who are trained to be, do those kinds of interactions that also contribute to public safety, that they have the funding that they need. And so I think the anxiety is kind of anxiety about the phrase, but actually not anxiety about the, the concept. We should be looking at, at budgets, and we should be looking at how we have uh, tried to solve some of our, our city problems and our public safety issues. And we should recognize that this over-reliance on police has given us the regime that we can see that is not working. Hey guys, this is Chuma. And of course, you're listening to The Silent Doc. If you've made it this far, bravo. Uh, clearly, this episode has meant something to you. So please do not forget to like, subscribe, write a review. Every single one goes a really long way. Um, let's finish strong with Angela Davis. Let's go. explain the demand as you see it what you feel needs to be done around defunding the police and then around prison abolition well the call to defund the police is i think an abolitionist uh, demand but it reflects only one aspect of uh, the process represented by uh, the demand Defunding the police is not simply about withdrawing funding for law enforcement and doing nothing else. And it appears as if uh, this is uh, the, 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 the rather superficial understanding uh, that has caused um, Biden to move in the direction he's moving in. It's about shifting public funds to new services and and, and new institutions, uh, mental health counselors uh, who um, can respond to people who are in crisis without arms. Uh, it's about shifting funding to education, to housing, to recreation. Uh, 
these things help to create security and safety. Um, it's about learning that safety, safeguarded by violence, is not really safety. And I would say that abolition is not primarily a negative strategy. It's not primarily about dismantling, getting rid of, but it's about re-envisioning. It's about building anew. And I would argue that abolition is a feminist uh, strategy. Uh, and one sees in these abolitionist demands that are, are emerging the pivotal influence of, of feminist uh, theories and practices. Explain that further. Um, well, I want us to see feminism not only as addressing um, issues of gender, uh, but rather as a methodological approach uh, of, of understanding the intersectionality of, 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 of struggles uh, and, 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 and issues. Uh, um, abolition feminism counters carceral feminism, which has unfortunately assumed that issues such as violence against women can be effectively addressed by um, using police force by uh, by 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 using imprisonment as a solution, and of course we know that uh, Joseph Biden in um, 1994, uh, who uh, claims that um, the Violence Against Women Act was such an important moment in his career, uh, the Violence Against Women Act was couched within the constant struggle. Neoliberal ideology drives us to focus on individuals, ourselves, individual victims, individual perpetrators. But how is it possible to solve the massive problem of racist state violence by calling upon individual police officers to bear the burden of that history and to assume that by prosecuting them, by exacting our revenge on them, we would have somehow made progress in eradicating racism? So explain what exactly you're demanding. Well, neoliberal logic assumes that the fundamental unit of society is the individual, uh, and I would say the abstract individual. Um, uh, according to that logic, black people can combat racism by pulling themselves up by their own individual bootstraps. Uh, um, that logic recognizes, or fails rather, to recognize that there are institutional barriers that cannot be uh, 
brought down by individual determination. If a black person is materially unable to attend the university, the solution is not affirmative action, they argue, but rather the person simply needs to work harder, get good grades, and do what is necessary in order to acquire the funds to pay for tuition. Neoliberal logic deters us from thinking about the simpler solution, which is free education. I'm thinking about uh, the fact that we have been aware of the, the, the need for these institutional strategies at least since 1935, and of course before, but I'm choosing 1935 because that was the year when W.E.B. Du Bois published his uh, germinal uh, Black Reconstruction in America. Um, and the question was not what should individual black people do, but rather how to reorganize and restructure post-slavery society in order to guarantee the incorporation of those who have who had been formerly enslaved. The society could not remain the same or should not have remained the same. Neoliberalism resists change at the individual level. It asks the individual to adapt to conditions of capitalism, to conditions of racism.